Hey, everybody. This week's a great one. This is a classic from the Meadville, Pennsylvania area. For all those uh, lovers of the ice rink, um, you're going to definitely know this name. We have Coach Jamie Plunkett, eight-time state champion for uh, the Meadville Bulldogs hockey team. And it was such a pleasure sitting down and talking with Coach Plunkett because I had seen him, you know, the Meadville Tribune would come out every year with state champs and I'd see his photo and the team's photos and would hear so much about him and um, just buddies of mine that talked about him so so highly. And so for me, this was an unbelievable honor and pleasure to speak with him. So you're going to want to stick around. It's going to be a great episode. And um, to all your hockey-loving fans because this is a classic. See you in a bit. All nurses to the nurses station. Lawless country people are real close family. Lately, some of my kinfolk. Says, hey, softballs, I'm just a carrying on an old family tradition. They want to know, Doc, what do you think? I got some pain in my joints. He's playing hard in this life, that's too short. When that doctor asked me, son, how'd you get me? Tell me all about it, Doc. Hey, everybody. Dr. Ryan Molly here, orthopedic surgeon, cutter of bones, entrepreneur, businessman, but most importantly, loving husband, father of three young, busy, active, um, sometimes violent boys, but they're quiet now, so we're going to take that. Uh, tonight, I'm really, really excited about this guest. Um, this is actually the first guest that I've had on Hey Sawbones where um, I've never met this individual until tonight. I, I feel like I've met him because I've read so much about him um, over the years. He's a local legend in the Meadville area. Um, I don't think I have to uh, tell you guys who he is. He'll, he'll give a little bit more detail about himself, but um, Coach Jamie Plunkett. Thank so, you for having me. Coach? Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. So as we first start out each of these episodes, you know, our guests, they really want to kind of hear who you are. And before we started uh, recording, I got a little brief who you are, but I'm really excited to kind of dig down into more of the details. So let's hear where you're from, kind of how you grew up, maybe your family background, siblings, parents, and what brought you to where you are today. Uh, born in Toronto and... Um Lived there for about the first 10, 11 years of my life. And then my dad was transferred out to Vancouver, where I lived there for another six, seven years. And um, uh, growing up uh, playing hockey, like most kids in my era, um, 
and then uh, the midget division, which is a 15, 16-year-old division, is kind of a critical age group if you're serious about playing hockey and you want to move to the, the next level. And uh, I was drafted by Swift Current Saskatchewan in the Western Hockey League, and my parents said, you're not going there. So the compromise was I moved back to Ottawa uh, for my grade 12, my senior year in high school, and lived with my aunt and uncle. Um, my dad uh, and, and the rest of my family lived out and st were still in Vancouver. And um, following um, my senior year in high school, I then went to Cornell University. And it was during my first year at Cornell that my family, my dad was transferred back to the Toronto area. And um, I have an older brother who uh, uh, worked in the Canadian government. Uh, he's now retired. I have a sister that is uh, in uh, just outside the Ottawa area there. Uh, my parents have passed. And uh, um, so I graduated from Cornell. Did you play hockey at Cornell? Played a little bit. Uh, they were a couple years removed from being the only Division I <coughs> national champion that were undefeated. So. Wow. Uh, and I'm old enough to, that uh, when I went to Cornell, you had to play freshman hockey. The Ivy League was still the only conference that required the freshmen to play freshman hockey okay. and football, basketball, all the sports. Um, so when I tried out for the varsity, there were about 70-some guys on the ice, and uh, there were a lot of good players. So uh, uh, most of the playing time I got was my junior year, hurt my shoulder my senior year, um, didn't really play as much as I would have liked, but had a great experience there. Um, what did you major in when you were at Cornell? I was in communications. Oh. You know, I, um, my, prior to going to Cornell, I had met the athletic trainer of um, the Chicago Blackhawks. I worked at a hockey school in Chicago, and he was my boss there. And he kind of put a bug in my ear, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And uh, my senior year at Cornell, he told me that a, a new program had just started in Oakville, Ontario, that a lot of the hockey teams were, that's where they were getting all their, athletic trainers from and uh so i went home one weekend and w w my mother and i went to look at the school and uh decided that's what i wanted to do it was a two-year program and uh so you had your athletic training degree at uh, at sheridan college in oakville ontario okay so we have something in common because i was uh, an athletic trainer well i i learned <laughs> that from the when i watched the bill Hagen yeah. episode. yeah um and so my uh, my wife, who, who we dated while we were at Cornell, she was a, in nursing school in New York City. And um, when uh, she graduated, I graduated, and then we, we got married in the summer of 1979. And um, she started her first year. She was an operating room, operating room nurse and at Upstate Medical Center in Syracuse. Okay. And I was working as an assistant athletic trainer at uh, Cornell, commuting from Syracuse to Ithaca, and uh, half of my day was spent in the uh, physical therapy department, which was just getting off the ground. So I was kind of half in the PT department doing rehabilitation sure. with our athletes, and then the other, I worked football in the fall, hockey in the, in the winter. And wow. did that for, from, uh, for four years, and then the athletic department went through some budgetary issues, and... Um, we had a big staff, and I was the most recent hired. So the, my boss at that time said, I know a school in Pennsylvania. Uh, their head coach used to coach here. 
and he tells me they're looking for an athletic trainer. Um, why don't you go out there and see what it looks like? And then uh, when things calm down, we'll get you back here. Because uh, uh, working with the hockey program, that was what I was you know, most happy with. Sure. Uh, came to Meadville in the fall of 1983 and uh, interviewed with uh, Norm Sundstrom. And um, a couple of days later, I was told I had the job. And we moved here and thinking we'd be here for one year, maybe two. And that was 40 years ago. <laughs> so uh, Meadville sucks you yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was kind of funny when uh, we stayed at the David Mead Inn uh, down on Chestnut Street. Okay. And uh, while I was interviewing it with uh, Allegheny, my wife went to City Hospital and Spencer Hospital, which is what they were called in those days. And she said, well, I got a job. And, uh, and so we had, you know, she was going to be able to work uh, as well here. And... Uh, sitting at dinner, the um, waiter said, yeah, we have a rink here in town. And I think, as I look back, I said, what are the chances of this whole area, you know, all the, you think of all the high schools, and Meadville was the only one that had a rink. And I thought, well, uh, that was good to know. And uh, first year, uh, Bill Dross, who was working at Orthopedic Associates yeah. with... Uh, he casted my ankle when I was... Uh 12 years old and broke my fibula. Is that right? Yeah. You're talking Bill Dross Sr. Bill Dross yep. Sr. He was uh, with uh, Lawson Smart and Jim McClam uh -huh. when they were just across the street from uh, Liberty now. And they were doing a case and uh, making small talk. And uh, Billy's two boys were playing hockey. And uh, Lawson's son was going to play hockey. And uh, they, my wife came home and said, hey, they're looking for a coach to, to coach like a house league team. Would you be interested? And... I said, sure, and uh, did that for the rest of the year. And then the next year, um, Allegheny College asked me if I would coach um, their club team. They needed a, an employee or a faculty member to kind of sign off on it. And uh, foolishly, I said yes, because <laughs> uh, they had the worst ice times. And you might get six kids at a practice one day, or you might get 10 kids at a game. And I did that for a year and a half, and I finally said you know, I got a young daughter at home now. I said, I need to, you know, take care of that. And and then about a week after I said I was done with Allegheny, a gentleman by the name of Bill Robertson, who was the president of Bulldog Hockey, approached me uh, if I would interview for the position. And I did. And uh, so... Uh, in the did they have a high school team at that they point? They did, okay. yeah. So the rink opened, if I, I think the rink opened in 19... 79 and i believe this is the mark the mark yeah, yeah. and uh they rank swimming pool down yeah. there tennis courts and i believe they were called the crawford county cobras initially okay and then i think in uh or, i'm sorry 1976 i think is when the rink opened okay and in 1979 they changed the name to the uh Mevo bulldogs okay and um uh, but they were kind of a club team. Club team, and but they had had a really good year, the 85-86 season. They made it to, I think, the Western Final. And okay. uh, uh, really a good group of kids, young. We only had a couple of seniors, uh, three, four seniors on my te first team. The nucleus of the team were all sophomores and uh, some freshmen, a couple of juniors. And, uh, when was Mike Abadanza there? Do you remember? Yeah. Mike uh, graduated in 1990. 
two. Okay. He's my cousin. Okay. Well, Mike was a goaltender for us, and uh, we won a state championship his senior year. Yeah. I believe. Last I heard, he was a firefighter. Uh, he may be. He, he, his parents, you know, I still see them, but I haven't seen Mike in, in quite some time. Last I heard, I think he was in the Charlotte area. Okay. But, uh, uh, yeah, he was a fiery kid. And uh, uh, so we, uh, we uh, I think, won in 1989, which was his freshman year, and then uh, he was the starter and great goaltender for us his senior year in 92. So he um, started with the Meadville Bulldogs. Did they ever become a high school team, or were they? have they always continued to be? What is the, the the designation? I guess the PIAA. I don't think will ever take on the hockey's a varsity sport okay. because of the expense. Got it. Um, Ohio does. Michigan does. Um, so when I hear Meadville Bulldogs, or I hear uh, Cathedral Prep has a team, right? They are, but they're all the same. But uh, are they the rep, prep ramblers? Mm-hmm. But they're not technically endorsed by the high school so what we did after we're funded i guess right all our funding comes from our parents and uh, boosters and fundraisers exactly um some schools will get a little bit of help from the uh, school district uh but uh when the rink i'm sorry when the middle school was back in the diamond um the crawford central would buy pool time and ice time to teach the kids how to swim and uh, skate okay and but there was the transportation issue of bringing them down the the expense from the diamond to the rink so a lot of that money was some of that money i should say was not used and we were able to work out a deal that any money that was left over could be applied to our ice bill the cost of ice time is that your biggest expense with hockey uh we're we're one of the cheaper rates because we're a city-owned facility and it's about 250 dollars an hour okay you're paying almost four hundred fifty, four hundred and ninety dollars an hour in some of the, the private. You're talking. This is current in Pittsburgh. Yeah, now you're yeah. paying close to five hundred dollars an hour during the peak out. Yeah, it's and the equipment is ridiculously expensive. You know, skates and sticks and helmets. Uh, it's it's crazy. So um, we rely a lot on a, a tournament we run as a fundraiser, a golf outing, um, and just the the parents. You know, they have to. Sure. For their kid, yeah. yeah. So it's 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 an expensive um, proposition, but uh, over the years I've talked to a number of the parents, and they they say it was money well spent. They they were able to spend a lot of time with their kids, as opposed to you know some parents who never know where their kids are at any given time of the day. Sure. Um, I think there was a closeness with the program because the parents were all traveling together. You yeah. know, we didn't. You know, there's usually a couple times a year where you were in a hotel for a weekend series or yeah. a tournament. And uh, usually most every parent was there. And uh, uh, so it really developed a closeness amongst the kids. And I think now as these kids are, are adults and having kids of their own, I think they realize just the sacrifices that these parents made for their kids. Right. And uh, so it's it's uh, been a close-knit group. And, and one of the reasons why I stayed for as long as I did, because it really um, just just a lot of fun. Yeah. And I'm sure it kind of grew on you, right? I mean, if you're around those people and those families for for as many hours and days and weeks on end that you you had, yeah, you grew it, close to them. It's a long season. I mean, it starts in September and uh, it can go as into March. And we had a couple of years where we went right to April uh, because of the 
the playoffs being dragged out and everything. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a long season. Well, thank you again for coming on. We've got some Irish whiskey at your request. What was the brand of this one? Red. Uh, that was a name that I hadn't heard of. Yeah, so me I, either. Jay, I'll get you the name when we're done here. But I think the key is the the ice and a little bit of water. Very good. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. I think that is actually really good. Thank you. I'm I'm surprised a little bit that uh, I said this is my first Irish whiskey. It may grow on me a little bit. Got a little bit of Irish in me. I'm mostly yeah. Italian, but so hey, we talked about the format. We're going to learn a lot more about you. Um, any business, personal questions you have for me, we don't have to stick to the three and three format. I, I'm here to learn more about you, but. Um. Well, I, I, you know, being an athletic trainer and working closely with our team doctor, uh, I worked with Lawson Smart a little bit. And then uh, Jim Maslack came to town in 1988 and he played football at Allegheny. So he kind of took over the Allegheny team doctor role. And uh, we, uh, during the fall, which was my busiest time of year, we talked several times a week. Uh, Jim was always on the sidelines for home games. Um, and uh, so it, one of the things I was most proud about when I moved to Meadville, just about any kid that was injured would either head back to Pittsburgh or to Cleveland to their, their uh, high school doctors. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Meadville, you know, it was like, you know, you don't get looked at by anybody in Meadville. Sure. But during my last few years, uh, we were keeping all these kids home you know unless there was an insurance driven they had so much confidence in the health care and uh, my wife was the director of the health center at allegheny college for close to 30 years so wow. uh, she took care of the athletes if they were sick sure so it was it was a great setup um and uh uh what i was found you know 40 years ago the term acl was coming onto the scene and nobody knew exactly what function of the ACL and today it's in everybody's jargon I think yeah but, uh, and it's been interesting over the last 20 years um, especially I see it in hockey the uh, number of hip injuries that occur. oh gosh so I'm interested to uh, hear a little bit more about that as well and with uh, some of my questions that I have for you yeah so, fire away so uh, um, I guess the first one that I had um, what you're, you're like Bill you're prepared well, I I probably would have not done that. I had not seen Bill do it. <laughs> Talk about you, Mr. Hager. Yeah. So, um, what goes in your decision uh, making when it comes time to deciding to do a complete replacement versus a partial replacement? Yeah, so I'm going to kind of talk. So when people hear the terms partial knee replacement or total knee replacement, um, there's really three areas of the knee. And I, I'm talking to you, but I'm mainly talking because you know a lot of this as your former athletic training background. But there's the inside part of the knee called the medial compartment. There's the outside part of the knee called a lateral compartment. And then there's what's called the patellofemoral compartment, the one between the kneecap and uh, the end of the femur. There's a groove called the trochlea. Um, Jay, if you want to put some diagrams of that, you've done a, a tremendous job with all the educational videos. So um when we talk about arthritis of the knee, which is essentially just the wearing away of cartilage and, and the end of each of the bones in our bodies, particularly our knees and our hip joints, it's about two millimeters thick. So that's about two to maybe three credit cards thick. Very, very thin. It doesn't have any nerve endings, so you can walk around all day and you're not going to have pain in the end of your, your joints. Um, it's kind of a buffer, an insulator, a shock absorber, but 
just like tread on a car tire, when time goes, it starts to wear out. Now, in about 70% of the population, when it wears out, it wears out in two, if not three of the compartments, medial, lateral, and patellofemoral compartment. But about 25 to 30% of the, the cases, we see that it will affect one compartment of the knee. And of that 25%, about 90% is the medial compartment, the inside part. The lateral, it's maybe 8 to 10%. And then just isolated patellofemoral, isolated kneecap arthritis is very rare. It's less than 1% of all knee replacements that are done. Um, so when the decision-making time comes, number one, I'm talking to the patient, making sure that they have symptoms of arthritis, pain, swelling, stiffness, uh, maybe range of motion has, has been lost. Maybe they're, they're, it's inflamed or warm to touch. Um, but I'm also looking at x-rays. So I'm looking to see with different views from the front, from the back, from the side, looking underneath the kneecaps. And then the particular set of x-rays that we get to really kind of determine if it's going to be a partial versus a total is what's called a stress x-ray, where they'll x-ray it from the front. And um, one of the x-ray techs will put on a pair of leg gloves. They'll put one above on the end of the femur, one on the shin bone or tibia, and they'll push it one way and push it the other way. And they're trying to get the compartments to see if they'll collapse down. And um, if when you do that stress test and you're arthritic on the inside and it doesn't collapse down on the outside part of the knee, you could potentially be a good candidate for a partial knee. And there's a lot of advantages to a partial knee. A lot less pain, um, less swelling, much quicker recovery. Um, at the end of the day, they'll both do probably equally as well as one another. I think partial knees have a tendency to forget that they had a knee replacement because they, they maintain the ACL anterior cruciate ligament, they maintain the PCL and the collateral ligaments. Whereas a total knee, first thing we do when we get in there is literally within five minutes, I'm cutting the ACL and throw it in the garbage. Wow. And then I cut the PCL a couple minutes later and throw that in the garbage. So we've lost two of the, the main stabilizers of our knee, the ones that all the professional athletes are getting reconstructed. So for a partial knee, you actually have to have intact anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments to even be a candidate for it. So that's where, you know, doing a Lockman exam, an anterior drawer, test. Um, but also you probably won't get isolated medial compartment arthritis if your ACL is out. That's one thing that we kind of found. So they almost aren't a candidate by default because they wouldn't look like a candidate on x-rays because they start to rotate and they start to become arthritic on the outside part of the knee too. But that's kind of the decision making. So in my hands, about 25 to 30% of my patients are partial knee candidates. Um, the other are total knee candidates. And I tell all my partial knee candidates, during the operation, if I see the outside part is um, too arthritic or your you know, ACL is out or you have patellofemoral arthritis, I'm prepared and I will convert to a total knee replacement. But that's pretty rare, maybe 5 or 10%. Um, Long-winded answer. Yeah. <laughs> I heard um, a hockey player uh, might have to step aside from playing the rest of this year and possibly. He underwent resurfacing of the hip in the off season and has not done well. Um, hip resurfacing versus hip replacement. So this would be another great one, Jay, if you could put a couple, um, just some photos up there, maybe a, a photo of the total hip on the right, part, or hip resurfacing on the left. Um, so when we're talking about hip resurfacing, I wish I had some models, but I'll, I'll use my, my arms and my hand. So this will be the, the hip joint. We have the ball, that's the top part of the femoral head or the thigh bone. We have the socket, that's the acetabulum, the pelvis bone. So it creates a, a ball and socket joint. 
When we get arthritis, the space between the ball and the socket gets worn out because the cartilage gets worn out and you rub raw bone on raw bone. When we replace a hip with a total hip replacement, we make a cut at the base of the femoral head and neck before it goes into the shaft of the femur. And we put a stem down inside the intramedullary canal of the femur. And then there's a neck that goes on that. And then we put a new ball on that. And then inside the socket, we put a shell and then we put it all back together. So we're removing the femoral head and we're removing the femoral neck. When we do a hip resurfacing, we're dislocating the hip. We're not cutting the ball off the top of the femur. We are. You have to dislocate the hip first. Then you put the socket in. You have to create space to be able to do that. And then what you do is um, think about um, a, a, a device that would core an apple, um, where it would it would. But this is kind of the opposite. So it's it's essentially a reamer. You'd put a pin all the way up on the outside part of the femur, up into the femoral head, and out the very apex of the femoral head. Then there's a reamer that goes down over top of that. And if this is my femoral head and my neck, it reams the sides of it to create a, a cylinder. And then there's a conical reamer that goes on top to create angles for, for stability. And then there's a peg, central peg, that goes into the head. So you're preserving the patient's femoral head and their femoral neck. Technically, it's more anatomic. Um, and technically, it's a very stable hip because you have a very large ball in a, a large socket. Traditional hip replacements, the ball was very small. It was 28 millimeters um, in, in diameter. That's that's much less than an inch. Um, so it, it didn't have to travel far to dislocate. So one of the main advantages, increased hip stability Another uh, of hip resurfacing. Another big advantage, it maintaining the, the normal leg length and the normal offset, which is the distance between the center of the pelvis and the, the femoral shaft, how far it comes away from the center of the body. Um, downsides to hip resurfacing. Number one, most people think it's very it's a preservation type procedure, and it kind of is from a bony standpoint, but in order to dislocate the hip, you have to detach all the muscles and tendons on the backside of the femur called the short external rotators. And you're splitting the gluteus maximus, you're splitting the IT band, so it's it's maximally invasive. People think it's minimally invasive. Hip resurfacing is probably the most maximally invasive type of replacement. It's still a replacement. It's just instead of cutting off, we resurface the femoral head, hence mm -hmm. the term. Okay. The downsides to, to a total hip would be, well, you got to go inside the femoral canal, which is not really a downside. And in my opinion, there's really very few advantages of doing a hip resurfacing over a total hip um, because the we've gotten the heads on total hips much bigger now because we can make the shells much, much smaller. Um, and, and the diameter is larger. So it can accept essentially the same size femoral head as what I would take out of a patient with probably within a couple millimeters. Um, but the biggest advantage to me is you can do it through a minimally invasive approach because when you make a cut here and you take the head out, you've now created space. So you don't have to do a surgical dislocation and in order to do that surgical dislocation, you have to detach all the muscles and tendons. So the way that I do hip replacements through the front, through a direct anterior approach, you don't have to cut any muscles or tendons. So it's technically minimally invasive. It seems like it's more invasive because you're cutting the bone. But what you're doing and detaching is that you're not detaching anything. So it's actually uh, more advantageous. And femoral stems, a lot of people say, well, well just keep the femoral head and neck. Well, I would say, why wouldn't you just put a stem in? Because the stems have a great survival rate, 98, 99% at 15 to 20 years. So 
The other downside to a hip resurfacing, we've heard a lot about metal on metal, right? If you have, do you have this metal on metal hip? Several have been recalled. Um, those are total and total hips, total hip replacements that have metal on metal, but the hip resurfacing is a decent design, but you still have metal rubbing on metal, which can create metal ions. It can get into your bloodstream. It can be uh, harmful for your kidneys. It can be harmful for your brain. It can be harmful, you know, you can get ringing in your ears and, and memory loss and vision issues. So it's not benign. So there's your pros and cons. Okay. Um, the materials that you use in your replacement procedures, have they changed? Have they changed quite a bit over, the, over the years? Yeah. Um, so yeah, they have from when they first started doing joint replacements back in the like 1930s, 40s, historically and experimentally, it, they started using like wood. Right. And then we realized, well, wood, wood is not a great bearing surface. And then they tried materials such as glass. Oh, well, glass was was too brittle. Um, then they started using metal and they decided they, they tried ivory. They, they tried all these other things, uh, but they tried metal and they said, well, let's rub metal on metal. And um, when metal metal works, it works really, really well. When metal metal fails, it's catastrophic because it will destroy bone and soft tissue like like dumping acid into the skin. Um, so then they started to go to metal and ceramic, um, uh, metal and plastic. And the biggest thing that I would say has changed the material is the plastic, right? It was very rudimentary when it was first uh, designed and developed. And there's so much science that goes into like polyethylene science at plastic science. Um, so they made it and they started to do uh, certain techniques to the sterilization of it, as well as the, the manufacturing of it, where they would irradiate it. They would cross-link it, um, which increases the, the the properties, the strength of the um, the plastic, helps to make it a better bearing surface, and it increases uh, the shelf life of mm -hmm. it too. Because they would just put it on the shelves in oxygen and free radicals would get in there and it would really start to delaminate and fail and crack prematurely. But all these... Uh, treatments that they would do to the plastics really change things. And then history repeats itself, right? So then they said, well, let's go back to metal and metal. And they did it. And the, the ones that did really, really well did really well. The ones that failed, failed catastrophically. That happened about three or four times, and it's about to happen again. It's funny because it happens about every 15 to 20 years. I think it's the cycle of surgeons retiring, and then they, re they remember how bad it was. And then the, the ones that didn't really do it or deal with the disasters are coming through. They're like, well... They get a little arrogant or cocky, and they think, let's try metal and metal again. And um, again, when it works, it works great, but there's a lot of downside to it. The current bearings right now are um, ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene. That's the plastic. Metal, either made of, uh, the stems are usually made for hips of titanium. The tibial base plates are titanium. And then the, um, the end of the femur is made of cobalt chrome. So those two metals together. There's a couple other metals in there too, but mainly cobalt and chrome. And then we use a lot of ceramics as well, like mm. in the hips. Every ball that I put on is a ceramic ball with a plastic liner that snaps on it. And then there's a metal socket or shell and a metal stem. Wow. So it's, it's come a long ways. Those are my three. Perfect. Any personal questions or? Um, uh, I do. I do. Fire um, away. Um, do you have a bucket list vacation destination that you haven't gotten to yet? Um, I, I do. Um, 
I'm going to just say the continent of South America. I've, I've never been down there. And there's so many places there that I would love to visit, whether it's, you know, Brazil and the rainforest, whether it's, um, you know, getting down to Argentina um, and, and just anywhere south of the equator. I just I feel like Chile, I think, would be wonderful, too. Just the cultures. Um, I really love being outdoors. I love hiking. And um, Patagonia is down there. I, I just think it would be amazing to to get down there. And, and if I had like months, you yeah. know, it's been a couple of weeks in each of those areas. Yeah. Athletes have a pregame routine they follow prior to every contest. As a surgeon, do you have a pre-surgery routine that you follow? Jamie, that's probably one of my favorite questions I've ever been asked. And I have never been asked that question and because it's very important to me. So um, I've always been, I've always had a commute. Um, when I was in Michigan in practice, I drove about 45 minutes to an hour to the hospital every morning to operate or to my office. So most people, they live five, 10 minutes from work. That wouldn't work well for me because I, I'm kind of that game. I was an athlete. I played basketball and volleyball and, um, grew up with athletes. I was an athletic trainer. So, um, it, to me, there's a moment I get up. It's the same thing every day, right? I, I go to the bathroom. I take a shower, um, before I do all that, I start the coffee, then I make my coffee, have my water, get in, a, in my truck, and I pray. Um, that's the first thing I do before I, I ever go anywhere. Um, then I'll drive down. Usually I'll either listen to music, listen to podcasts, or audiobooks. I'm listening to an amazing audiobook right now. Um, Jay, if you can kind of put a little plug in for this one. It's called Breath. Um, have you ever heard of it? No. I'm getting you a copy. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm doing the audiobook because I spend a lot of time in the vehicle. I have about an hour and 15-minute commute every morning, uh, so almost two and a half hours in the car every day. Mm -hmm. So my way into work is kind of my time. You know, I'll, I'll say my prayers. Um, I, I just get into a nice mindset set coming into surgery, and then when I get to the hospital, I am, I'm OCD. I do the exact same thing every single day. I go see my first three patients. I mark them. I talk to them. I go back, I look at my x-rays, I, I do all my notes on there that I haven't already done already. Uh, I'll go get, go get changed, they'll be ready with the first case, go in, um, and it's the same thing. Every case is the same. And then, uh, so to me it is, it's important to be in a routine, but my pre-drink, uh, competition drink is coffee and water. Okay, yeah. So. Well, being an athlete, you know that there's some guys that are just, or gals, they exactly the same routine, they put right sock on first they it, do everything you get a little um uh superstitious right you know i'm more familiar with hockey players but hockey players are really uh very superstitious you know they tape their sticks you know the same way they tape it you know between periods of a game though you know there's just i read a story one time where a goaltender used to take off all his equipment completely get undressed and then put it all back on because you just had to stay busy during the, the break. You know? And that's a lot of equipment, right? It is. It's a lot of work, yeah. So. But how long would that take to get on one well, time? Probably at least a good 10 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Can can they do that themselves? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, if you're a parent of a, a young hockey player, you're going to have a sore back because you're going to be tightening skates forever. And then it's kind of a milestone when your kid can tighten their own skates and what age does that usually happen probably not to seven or eight. Oh, okay so yeah. it's, it's actually a pretty young 
But yeah, it's and these new skates are. So I thought you were gonna say like twelve or thirteen or something like that. No, nah, I think you'd get ridiculed if you still had your mother and father coming over <laughs> tighten your skates at twelve or thirteen. But uh, these skates today are so much different than when I was a kid that age. I mean, uh, they're so rigid. So you really it it's a strength issue, I think, for uh, for a lot of the younger kids, is to get them tight enough so that the skate has the support that you're, sure. you're looking for. Yeah. I'm going to go out of turn here just because I don't want to forget this question. Do you see many ankle injuries in hockey? Because, I, I mean, I feel like everything is so tight. No, no. I think skiers and hockey players, because of the, the bindings and everything, the, the, you know, the supination, pronation, you know, rolling your foot out, rolling it in, the edge work that you have to have either on a ski or a skate, really, um, you don't. Now, um, if there is an ankle injury, a lot of time... Uh, it could be a player crashing into the boards. Okay. Uh, I think in one of Sidney Crosby's first years, he had a, a bad sprain, that, that high ankle sprain. Yeah. Now, and that was from... Uh, Rotation. Going into the boards. And, uh, or you'll, if the ice, the quality of the rink is not very good, there'll be uh, ruts. And, and, you know, you're, you're thinking that the ice is fine and then you catch a rut and it might cause you. But you don't see a lot of ankle injuries in springs yeah. in, in hockey it's interesting how each sport has kind of their certain types of injuries that they commonly see right i mean women's volleyball you're going to see mainly shoulder injuries and maybe some knee injuries but well uh, you know that thing that i saw in the last 20 years was that the, the high incidence of hip injuries and i don't know if it's now the year-round training it's the box jumps, the plyometrics, goalies are prone to it because of what they call the butterfly position where they go down on their knees and they rotate their hips. And, you know, you talk to some people, they'll say it's not if, it's when. You know, they're, they're going to have an issue with their hip. But I don't remember that being uh, common. You know, back in the day, maybe it was there and we just said, well, you may have pulled your groin or, you, you, uh, you know, you uh, uh, have a hip flexor injury. Type of thing. Yeah, but there may have been some hip issues there that we're. Missing. I mean, I think a lot of it is it's just unnatural, right? Like mm-hmm. we're pretty planar creatures this way. Like we we spend so much time human beings in the sagittal plane that when we start to go into other planes like the coronal plane and, and do that butterfly position that you're talking about, like I wouldn't be able to do that. I actually have bad what's called femoroacetabular impingement, where my ball is not round; it's more oval shaped. And hockey players have a lot of that. Where they get impingement because they're they're constantly getting into a, to this position of forced internal rotation, which then bangs the femoral neck up against the acetabulum, and then they'll get bone spurs there. That's a very common thing in, in yeah, hockey players. It, so that uh, you know, just as forty years ago, you started to hear about this ACL. Now you're hearing, you know, hip injuries are, are really. So I think they're looking at training um, the uh, you know trying to. St- you know, mix up their training, do some different things so you're not just focusing on, you know, box jumping where you're just loading up and that, ex- you know, you want that explosiveness for skating, you know, the right. first two, three steps, but it's coming at a price. Yeah. yeah. It's that balance, right? You know, they. I remember hearing a story about Mario Lemieux, you know, he was notorious for not working out in the summer. He was just so naturally gifted. And, uh, one of his teammates asked him, what do you do to, you know, start getting ready for the upcoming season? He says, well, I don't put gravy on my French fries in starting, <laughs> in, starting in August. So it's, it's changed quite a bit over the years from uh, uh, how it was and how it is now. So. That's awesome. Yeah. 
my last question for you. All right. Uh, kind of a two-part. Uh, what kind of music do you listen to? And uh, are you a concert goer? Another great question. So I'm a huge music guy. Um, there are speakers all throughout this house. Um, and I am constantly listening to either Sirius in my car or Pandora. I, in the operating room, I'm always listening to music. Always. It's That's my... That's my safe haven there in the OR. No one can bother me. Um, if you ask my my team, they know exactly what I generally listen to, but I try to mix it up. Um, Pink Floyd is my all-time favorite band. So I there's probably not going to be a week that goes by uh, other than maybe leading up to Christmas because I'm a huge Christmas fan and I love yeah. Christmas music. But there's not going to be a week go- that goes by in the OR where I'm not playing Pink Floyd at least one day a week. But I do a lot of classic rock, so I'll do like uh, Guns N' Roses, prob- or not uh, hard rock, Guns N' Roses is probably um, one of my favorite bands. I'll do some Def Leppard, uh, some Collective Soul, ACDC, uh, but Pink Floyd's that one that just, especially for what I do, because I'm so focused when I'm operating, I don't really like to talk much when I operate. I'm, I'm very lasered in, and for me, Pink Floyd's a, a lot of like instrumentals. And it's very just calming to me. Mm. And I am an absolute lover of going to concerts. Uh, don't get to do it nearly as much as I used to or as much as I would like to um, just because of three boys. But yeah. uh, my wife and I, we try to make it a point at least once or twice a year. Like last summer we went to, or just her and I, we went to a Dave Matthews concert. And it was awesome because we don't get many date nights. Uh, but we've done a lot of concerts with like other friends, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Dave Matthews, We've seen Coldplay. I've seen Guns N' Roses. My wife's not a big rock fan, so she wouldn't go for that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah. Yeah, good. So want to flip the tables here? Certainly. Okay. So um, you've you've kind of done several different things, right? I mean, you're athletic trainer, um, and then this hockey coach that just seemed to just kind of come along in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Did you ever see that coming or was that just kind of opportunity knocks and I'm going to help out for a little bit, but I don't think you probably would say yes to being there for 40 some years and coaching for at least 30 something, right? 37. 37. Wow. Well, I kind of caught the bug my last three years at Cornell. um, I was the JV coach. Okay. So I would finish my, athletic training responsibilities and cross the street into the rink and then um, go to practice and uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, there was one full-time assistant, the head coach, he had a, uh, the head coach had one full-time assistant and then they started to kind of give me some additional duties and uh, uh, found I really liked it. And, and then the job at Allegheny came. So I kind of just parked the, the hockey piece on the side and then missed, missed Cornell uh, a lot and then missed the program. And, and then when the chance came to do a little bit here, um, uh, I, I accepted it. But I was the only athletic trainer uh, at Allegheny from 1983, 84 till 88, 89. So I really wow. could not spread myself any thinner because yeah. of, uh, I didn't do much. How tra- was your daughter at that point? She was born in 84. Okay. So, Is this the one that I met earlier? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I didn't travel. The only sport I traveled with was football. 
Okay. But I had to be home for all home contests. Was Ken O'Keefe the coach then, or was he a little later? Sam Timer was the coach when I arrived at Allegheny. Okay. Bob Wolf came in for two years. Peter Voss came in 86, and he brought Ken in as his offensive line coach and coordinator. Okay. In 1989 uh, was Peter's last year. He coached it four years, and then he went to Notre Dame, where he's the um, uh, Joe Moore, another guy from Erie, McDowell guy, uh, got uh, Peter connected with Lou Holtz, and uh, he was the uh, quarterback coach for uh, Lou Holtz. Notre Dame, wow. And then Ken took over in 1990, and they won the national championship his first year. And he was the head coach until 97, and then he left. Went to Iowa, right? He went to Fordham for a year. Okay. And then he went out to Iowa with uh, Kirk Ferentz. And then uh, one of the coaches that was on the Allegheny staff um, the year we won the national championship, Joe Philbin, uh, and Ken were close friends and coached together for a little bit at uh, Green Bay. Or, I'm sorry, at... Uh, Joe was at Green Bay when Ken was at Iowa, and uh, Joe won a Super Bowl under Mike McCarthy at Green Bay, and then he was named the head coach of the Miami Dolphins in 2012. Wow. And he took Ken with him as the receivers coach. Oh, so, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, so uh, like most coaches in the NFL, he was fired. And uh, right now... How long was he there? I think he was there three or four years. What What was his last name? Philbin, P-H-I-L-B-I-N. Joe? Joe. Joe Philbin, yeah. okay. And uh, he ended up going back to Green Bay. He was on Dallas' staff because he's McCarthy. Yeah. And uh, it's funny, he, the coaches, there's loyalty there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's a, and this past year, he was a consultant with the Ohio State Buckeyes football program. Okay. No Where's coach, Ken at these days? Ken just retired a year ago. This is his first year retired. Okay. He, he uh, after Miami, he went back to Iowa and uh, was there for. 2015 or 16 until I think the 22 season was his last year. Uh, was he the head? Assistant. He was the uh, offensive uh, back coach, quarterback coach. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, but he was the head coach at Iowa for. No, he was always the. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. He was oh, assistant there. Okay. He and Kirk Ferentz coached together. Um, I just assumed he was the head. He was head at Allegheny then when he. Yes. Got it. Yeah. Great guy. Um, super coach. Um, and uh, uh, it, it was a great time because a lot of the coaches there, we were all around the same age and we all had young families. So it was, it was, uh, and Norm Sundstrom was the athletic director who, who hired all of us. And uh, uh, it was a close knit department, department and uh, really enjoyed that, that time. I'm sure. Yeah. These are just some names that I've, I've, I've heard of, but I've never had the pleasure of actually meeting. So I'm excited. So I think when you were growing up, John Reinders would have been the basketball coach yep. and Phil Ness came in. Yeah. yeah. Phil Ness was tall. I remember that. I used to go to the Allegheny basketball camp every summer. Well, because Maureen, you call her Mo, um, was there and, and her oldest son Nathan and I were best friends and we'd go there. It was one of my favorite camps. And it was Coach Reins, was it Reinsdorf? Or, uh, Reinders. Or, Reinders, yes. Yeah. Um, I remember him and then Coach Phil Ness came in, but it was fun because we played net. What was the the dome? It wasn't really a dome, but it was uh, the David Mead Fieldhouse. Yeah, probably. yeah, yep. So, yeah. and then we would play in the Montgomery Gym. Was that? Yep, that was just down very, below. Yep, that was the very first gymnasium. Yeah, 
where there was like no bleachers. No, right. There, there was not much out of bounds there. <laughs> so, uh, that building uh, is still there. The field house was raised in 1997 and replaced by the uh, uh, David Wise Center, which is off of Highland there by the old Mellon Pool. Okay. So what's where the David Mead was? Just grass area? It's now, just or? a green space. Okay. Yeah. So, um, how many championships? Uh, eight. There was one at the AA level and seven at the AAA level. And then we, um, living in a small town, we have had numbers issues with, uh, you know, just with the economy and the high cost of the sport. Um, so we, uh, we had to drop down a little bit, uh, to a different, a lower level. And then, uh, and then they had a, a, a they had another uh, option where you would they called it an open division where you could take players you could um, partner with area schools that were close by like Pontiac Lake sure you know if there was a kid Franklin that didn't have a rink to play he could come in and play in Meadville okay um, you couldn't do that prior no all the kids had to play for Meadville High School or attend Meadville High School okay uh, so they you know is it a pure team that's what they referred to as there so. We went uh, what they called open in the 2016-17 season. We won the open championship. So, okay, uh, um, but we had, you know, all the kids played against each other growing up because it's the only rink in the area. Right. But you know, if you were living in Sagertown, that meant mom and dad had to either sell their house and move into Meadville, or pay tuition, which was ridiculous. You know. The, yeah. You know, and I fought for it. Until I just finally said, you know, they're never going to change. You know, the PIAA has a rule that, let's say you're a swimmer and your school doesn't offer swimming. Right. Like Sagertown. No other school offers hockey. Exactly. <laughs> and we, when the league was formed, they kind of mimicked the PIAA rule book. Okay. Um, I remember we used to play Westminster in football, and they had this running back, and he played for Greenville High School, but his high school over in that area didn't have football. So he was able to play for Greenville. And I said, you know, that, that's what it's all about, giving kids an opportunity to yeah. play. But they didn't see it that way for hockey. So we mm -hmm. lost a lot of kids who, um, you know, had to go play elsewhere or just not play. Sure. Yeah, so. so your first championship, what year was that? My first year coaching, 86, 87. So it was kind of like Ken O'Keefe's first year coaching too? You guys, what did you guys do down we, there uh, your first year and you win championships? You didn't, it's it, a it, hard uh, standard to follow, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah, I touched on it a few minutes ago. What was I expecting when I started? I had really no idea what uh, uh, I was getting myself into. Uh, I just went on the reputation of or what this gentleman told me. He says, I think we've got some good young kids that you know, we just need somebody that's got a hockey background. Uh, none of us have ever played the sport. You know, we're kind of looking at a manual, trying to stay one step ahead of them. And, and um, at that time, I was still thinking... Uh, I might be going back to Cornell, uh, but I had a two-year-old at that time, and um, and my wife, uh, because of being on call as an OR nurse, she decided she wanted to become a nurse practitioner, and there weren't that many in the area at that time. Right. So she, this was before 279 was developed. She drove to Pitt uh, three, four days a week. It was a 16-month program, and she... You guys were living in Meadville? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So she still was working a little bit as an OR nurse, but uh, school was her priority. And uh, in uh, so she started that in the fall of 86. And 
I'm coaching hockey now for the first time. I have a two-year-old at home, and she finished that program in December of 87. Did you have, like, a nanny, or or who was helping out with your, uh, your two-year-old? Uh, you know, I had some kids that I met. I, I employed about 25 kids in the work-study program at Allegheny College. So there were a few there that I said, you know, that look responsible. And I said, do you want to make a little extra money? I, I, I need a babysitter because if I had a uh, hockey game. You had a nice pool to t- choose from then, huh? Yeah, so, but uh, my, uh, Sue's parents had moved to Florida, and my parents were in Ontario. So uh, we didn't have, and we and where's your wife's, um, uh, this is a personal question, but where's your wife from? She was born in Buffalo. Her dad worked for Nassau, so they lived in Florida for a period of time. Okay. He was an engineer. And then they moved back to the Buffalo area to be close to family. And he was an engineer in, in Binghamton, New York. And that's where my wife was living when she, she went to Cornell. Okay. And, then, and you guys met at Cornell. Yeah. And then you drug her to Meadville. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, and then in the mid-'80s, her dad and mom moved back to Florida, and he worked for uh, the Navy uh, until, until he retired. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah, so we didn't have much help. Uh, they came up a couple times, you know, throughout the year to see uh, Joan at that time. But uh, so not sure what I was getting myself into. And we played a, a smaller game schedule at that time because uh, uh, getting into the coaching late, we really we played in the Lakeshore League, which had Cathedral Prep, McDowell, I think Jamestown, Fredonia. Uh, just a small schedule, and we played a couple tournaments or one tournament and some non-league games. So, um, maybe like twelve games a season, or uh, it was I think twenty altogether, twenty-one. Okay. And uh, we won. Uh, the state championship was in the Philadelphia area that year, so we went one. And do they uh, rotate that? They do. Uh, there was a stretch there where they were playing it at Penn State, okay, uh, in their brand new rink there. But they've gone back to the format where they alternate east and west. Okay, and. Uh, and hockey was starting to take off in Western PA because of Mario Lemieux. You know, he was a superstar. Uh, a lot of young kids were getting into the sport, and uh, uh, it's just taken off. And with Sidney Crosby now, and and just the su- success that the uh, Penguins have had over the last you know, twenty or so years, it's uh, or thirty years now. And, and uh, uh, Pittsburgh was known for wrestling, football. Uh, it's now becoming one of the best areas to develop hockey players. Just yeah. because of the, the, you know, I, I give credit to Lemieux for starting it, but certainly Sidney Crosby has taken it to a whole different level. Yeah. yeah, it's a sport I'm so unfamiliar with, but it's a sport um, that I respect. And I joke, do not take any offense to this, okay? I joke with you know Renee Ray. Oh yeah, yeah. So Renee is obviously a huge hockey fan, and um, she took me to a Penguins game. Really, the only hockey I've been to a couple of the Otters games, but it was my only like professional professional hockey game. It was for my birthday, probably five or six years ago. And uh, when we got done, she's like, "So, what do you think?" She she's like convinced she's going to make a hockey fan out of me. I was like, "It's figure skating with a, with a stick," <laughs> and and I, I'm totally joking because the amount the the athletes that I have seen as an athletic trainer that that played at Mercyhurst. Um, and some of the ones that I knew that played for you down in the Meadville area um, were tremendous athletes. So um, it's it's probably more me not understanding the sport. And quite honestly, the hardest part for me is it, it's very fast paced, right? So the puck's going this this way that way. It's hard to for me to track it. Um, 
But the other hard thing for me is it's it's the same thing with soccer. Um, there's not enough goals. So I was a basketball player, right? I need constant scoring. I like that fast pace. And to me, when you when you score a lot of points, I feel like the better team almost always wins. Whereas hockey or soccer, um, I feel like there's some times where you can get a, a, a lucky, it comes off someone this or that, it comes off a stick awkwardly, and it goes in, and it's maybe a garbage goal, and but it still counts, and maybe you lose three to two. Yeah, yeah. Well, Renee did it right. If you're going to introduce somebody to the sport, take them to a Penguins game. Take them to a live game. Yeah. Because of, you know, following the puck, she should she should have taken you in the '80s because that's when there was no defense played, and it was eight eight seven games all the time. You would have uh, probably enjoyed that more. But uh, I'll tell you when the when the goals do occur, like I'm at the games, it's like the biggest. It's so exciting. Same with soccer too, right? Like you go to you watch it, World Cup games, things like that. The crowd goes nuts. I mean, they go crazy when a touchdown gets scored. But like you don't do that every basketball basket that gets dropped right, in, right? right? <laughs> well, I tell my friends back in Ontario that living in Western Pennsylvania for the last forty years, it's been spoiled because you've had uh, Mario Lemieux. You've had Sidney Crosby, and then for three years you had Connor McDavid up here in Erie. For and they're three of the most, probably th- three of the top ten players ever in the, to play the game. Wow! I took my wife to an Otters game when uh, McDavid was his first year, and uh, all this talk. We're driving up in the car, and she didn't understand. There, there's only been a handful of players granted what they call an exceptional player status, where. Normally, you can't come into the league until you're 16 years old, but they they have a panel that passes or denies you uh, uh, exceptional player status, and he was grant he was one of the first guys granted that. And uh, so he was younger than 16. He was 15 years old. His oh first wow! Year. So my wife watches him through the warm up. Now he hadn't matured yet physically. Yeah. To the point he is today, and she's watching him, and I and she says, I don't think he's that good. I said, Sue, he's 15 years old playing against 19, 20-year-olds. And two years later, he was the number one draft pick in the NHL. So it's uh, so we've been spoiled in this area with the great players that we've had. So that's, that's like my next question is um, you've had some amazing athletes. You obviously won a lot, eight championships, um, state championships. How, who – where do you get this from, this skill? Like I look at the Bill Hagers too, right, is – there's a lot of coaches out there, but the coaches that have continued success, what is your secret sauce? Well, it starts with players. You know, I, I walked into a great situation, um, and uh, uh, I think my, my growing up in uh, the hockey community, um, I was able to become friends with a good friend of mine was the athletic trainer for the Chicago Blackhawks. And it just so worked out when he moved to Pittsburgh to become the athletic trainer for the Penguins. Uh, one of the guys that was on the staff was a former player coach from Ithaca College who coached at Elmira College. Yeah. And he and I knew each other. So he would invite me down to practice all the time. And I would watch practices and take you know all the drills. A uh, good friend of mine was a head coach at Colgate University, just retired last year. And then I got to know a couple of the Otters coach, Dave McQueen, and then later Chris Knobloch. And um, I think 
Bill Hager would tell you the same thing. I think most coaches are pirates. You know, they steal from, and and I was taking everything like a sponge, just trying to soak everything in and figure out what works for the skill level that I had. Um, and uh, you know, I I think a lot of our our practices were pretty much everything I had learned from other coaches. Going to a ton of coaching clinics, um, and uh, I I think that's that's really how you have to be if you're going to be, if you're going to be able to compete against the top programs. Because yeah. So you were a student of the game. I, yeah, that I became that. I, I forget who told me and he says, well, if you're not, you know, watching this or doing this or doing that, you know, you're not going to be as successful as you can. You got to mm-hmm. just go at it a hundred percent and all in. And, and, uh, it wasn't unusual for me if I had an off day, I'd jump in the car, drive down to Pittsburgh for a 60-minute practice to watch the Penguins and pick up one drill and then turn around, drive home. In time it's for amazing practice. that you had access to that, though. Yeah. That's really cool. That was probably the, the thing that I don't know if I would have that today because of all the things that have gone on. Right. You know, but uh, I got to know the people that ran the parking where all the players could park at Mellon Arena, and she'd say, say, just go in there. I'll tell them that you're a drug rep or something. And uh, <laughs> uh, So... Um, it was it was great uh, getting to know uh, some of the coaches uh, and um, just being able to share you know seeing people that weren't afraid to share information. There's some coaches that won't share anything, but you know he would say there's there's no secrets out there. You know, just that's how I feel with surgery, right? It's like why wouldn't I share what I've learned and struggled through to get better with my colleagues, right? Like what. <laughs> They're either going to figure it out. And the other thing, too, is like if I don't share it, there's people that are going to get hurt, right? Like I've been there. I've seen it. So why not share what's going to help somebody else? And I think the cream's going to rise to the top. Just like if you're going to end up playing that team that you shared a secret with, like you're going to figure out other strategies and you're going to probably have scouted against them, right? So you're going to know like their weaknesses and vice versa. I spent a lot of nights. I'd come home from Allegheny and jump in the car and drive to pittsburgh to scout a game and uh we'd be playing them coming up and you're getting home at midnight one in the morning and and uh were you videoing or just kind of watching i was just watching i okay. i'm more old school I, you know just the eyeball you know we didn't have uh the technology that's there today sure. that i would have used but you would see tendencies right like this is their top players you know yeah but, yeah and uh, what they like to do and, and how they like to do it yeah and then and then you know that the, the thing that I really found that changed from one group of kids to the other is the kids' willingness to accept this information. You know, you know, some of the kids are looking at you, and you know, they're not paying attention. And you get to a game, and there might be a, you know, faceoffs are really big in hockey, and uh, it, there might be a key faceoff where we talked about, hey, this is what they're going to try to do, so be on your toes. And you come back to the bench, and they just stare at you like, oh, that's right, you did say that, you know, and. Uh, so that that's the the teaching part, I guess. I think one of the things that athletic training taught me was to become a listener because, and you've probably seen it, you know, a kid who's hurt and not playing, or a kid who's not playing as much as he or she would like. You know, this, the athletic training room was like a safe haven for them. They'd come in and and you know you had to kind of listen to there and be like a cab driver or a bartender just yeah i was gonna say bartender right (laughs) yeah and uh i think that helped me with coaching because there were times when i probably would have 
said something or did something different, but I, I, somebody taught me a long time ago, you know, 24 hour rule, you know, if you don't do anything in the first 24 hours because you're going to probably regret it because you thought you saw something when in fact it was not what you saw. And uh, that advice for the most part did me well. And then you come back 24 hours later and you're looking at it completely different and yeah. you're patient and you know, you're not ready to rip a kid's head off. Yeah, it's emotion, right? You can't, you shouldn't make any uh, statements or decisions. I, I'm guilty of that a lot, especially with parenting. But um, <laughs> yeah. sometimes you have to, right? You're like, maybe I didn't see him body slam him or you know, put him in a headlock like last <laughs> night and playing like referee down here and breaking up a fight, which is a nightly thing. So, yeah, having girls, I didn't have to deal with that. It was just what Barbie doll was stolen. And stuff. <laughs> so, uh, so, Again, eight championships. Do you have um, a favorite? You know, I I said that once real early on, and and I realized I'd made a mistake because it's like people saying, you know, which of your children do you love the most? Yeah. And I had a couple of parents come back afterwards, good naturedly, but um, I just had a retirement party the night before Thanksgiving, and I had kind of jotted down some notes, and what I forgot to tell them that probably the the, the game that I think made a big difference in our program happened in April of 1989. So there's this big year-end showcase tournament, and uh, it was in Chicago all the time. And uh, Pittsburgh Team Pittsburgh Center representative every year. And Meadville kids were not invited. They were not allowed to join, um, the, go to the tryouts. And uh, we were we had a gap between the Western Final and the state championship game. And we were... I was kind of going, going out of my mind, you know, with just too much downtime. Yeah. You know, I just want to play and get it over with. And uh, Team Pittsburgh needed a game before they went out to Chicago. So we played them in Meadville, and we were down 5-2 to two at the end of the second period. And as time expired, we scored the sixth goal and beat them 6-5. And the next year, Meadville kids were invited to this Team Pittsburgh. And I think that really... Um, Gave us a lot of uh, exposure. It, it, uh, you know, I think the people that down there that were reasonable said, you know, it's a Western Pennsylvania thing. It's not a Pittsburgh thing, really. It's right. Team Pittsburgh, but it's really a Western Pennsylvania. You pull it in just a little bit. Um, you know, they were taking kids from Catanning. Yeah. And uh, Butler, and and uh, so that that was probably one of the things I was most proud of. So it's a moment. Yeah. Right? It's like yeah. a game that like you felt changed the culture and. It. It was something that the kid intercepted the puck, it seemed like, with five seconds left. And it was like everything went to slow motion. I said, time's going to run out. And as the puck crossed the goal line, the buzzer went. And uh, it was one of those games where we had a lot of people in the stands, and it was the little town of Meadville. you know, uh, David versus Goliath. Yeah, that was kind of the mentality we had going into the game. You know, we have no business winning this game. Uh, we're playing probably a better team than you're going to see in the state championship. Let's just go out and have some fun and do what we can do. And we're down 5-2 at the end of the second. And, uh, you know, some kids, you know, might have thought, well, that's it. You know, let's look to the state championship game. And uh, we had a great, great group of kids that year. Then th that was my first group. They were seniors. They won two state titles in their three years. So I look at that. Ryan Smart, part of that? No, Ryan came in uh, in 1990, graduated in 1994. Okay. So he uh, he won three. Wow, so, not a bad run. 
So we have two kids that actually won four. Um, Scott Phyllis and Ron Puzz uh, won uh, all four years they played. Jeez. So uh, uh, we had a, a deep pool of talent, um, and I think that deep pool created a lot of competition. So if and if kids being kids, you know, if there's only 20 kids trying out for a team, the roster holds 20. I got a spot in the team. You know, I don't have to. And we went through that for several years uh, in the in the last 10 or so years just because we just didn't have the numbers. Right. And uh, there's nothing like competing, you know, against your your buddy if you want to get a, you know, a, you know, a, a prominent role or, yeah. you know, so that, uh, that competition, I think, was probably one of the key contributors as to why our program was successful. So coaches have different styles, right? I mean, whether no matter what sport it is. Basketball was my sport, so you've got the Bill Hager style. Um, you know, his assistant, Don Fee, for so many years at Maplewood, then he went to Griff City. His son, Jordan, is now the head coach at Gannon. I did and, hear that, yes. Yeah, and yes. he's going to be sitting in this chair two days from now Wow, for a podcast, and he runs a very, very up-tempo-paced style play. I went and saw them the Friday after Thanksgiving, and uh, I think they're averaging like 120 to 130 points per game. Wow. First game, they scored 140 or 147. He, he set the record in his first, two out of his first three games. But um, so you, you mentioned different group of kids. You have to coach a little differently. But did, did Coach Jamie Plunkett have like a style of play? Um, or did you change year to year based upon who you had? I would say that would be the case. Just because you didn't... You you didn't have the luxury of being like, all right, these are the if if you run a fast paced game, um, I'm going to take the fastest kids or something like that. So you kind of had to look at what you had. There's a saying in hockey that in my day they called it hockey sense. Today they call it hockey IQ, and okay. I think it's, you know, skating is number one. If you can't skate, you can't play this game. It's it's so much easier to play if you can skate. I would say second on the list now is your hockey sense, your hockey IQ, because I've seen so many players over the years that skate well, they shoot the puck, they pass, but they don't understand the game. And maybe there's somebody that you can think of in basketball, you know, they'd run around and never know where to be. Or Yeah. and uh, Like 50% of the kids on my team right now. But <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so uh, that to me was, it, you had to change because if you didn't have kids that understood positioning, yeah, um, spacing. This is where I should be when this puck is here or this ball is here. Making yeah. yourself valuable. and, and <laughs> Hockey is more of a read and react sport. Say football, you have a set play where you're going to yes. take so many steps and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. Hockey, you know, you you cut me off. Now I've got to do something different. You know, my coach said just go straight. Well, I can't go straight now because you're there. So what am I going to do? Right. They have to, they have to see things are happening and... Again, it's, it's very much reactionary. It is. It's not it's scripted, right? And um, I think one of the things I was guilty of when I was first started coaching, I uh, underestimated um, what these kids could handle. And, uh, and they're like sponges. And I think, you know, listening to some of these people that present at coaching clinics now, they're talking about these coaches that are teaching these kids – you know, at seven, eight years old, because they feel between the ages of seven and maybe 11, that's that sweet spot where 
And, um, you know, I'm after the guy down at the rink there, you know, let's, let's challenge these kids. It may not look very pretty in October, November, but come back in January and February, it might look a whole lot different. Sure. And, um, I tended to probably under deliver instead of throwing more at kids and the kid, you know, some of our talent, most talented players, you know, I'd come back from a penguins practice or an otters practice. And I said, Hey, these guys are the same age as you. This is the drill they were doing earlier today. I watched. Well, these guys are competitive. They want to be able to do it. And uh, so that was the fun part of coaching, the challenging part. And uh, um, But then when you have a guy that can't skate as well or can't process the information to make a play, you have to kind of say, okay, we're going to do something different. Yeah. And that happens in the NHL. I mean, you've got teams now that are saying, we, we don't have the Sidney Crosby, so we're going to have to play a, a more conservative, you know, uh, type of style and keep the game close and hope we score a goal late and win a game that way. So how many lines would you typically have? So hockey would have four f- forward lines. So that'd be three players on a forward line. So 12 forwards, okay. s- six defensemen and two goaltenders. Okay. At the high school level, if you have a good goaltender, one really good defenseman and maybe three or four forwards, you can probably compete with most teams in your league. Um, now when we went up against the really tough teams, you got to have three lines okay? because they have, and you can't, you can't play just two. When lines. you're saying a line, is that like a group that's out there at yeah. a time? So three players, there'd be a centerman, a left winger and a right winger. And, uh, so you would have, you would dress four sets of those three lines, okay. but you would probably only use three. Okay. And then when the game would get close, you would probably only use two. Now, are you, so you've got three that are probably going to play, three lines that are probably going to play. You, you have to balance that, right? You can't just be like, my best guys are going on the first line, my second best are going on the second line, and third best are going on the third. Did you, did you look at different players and how they complemented one another? And these two guys really seem to like be like Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, like they just know where the others is going to be? It's, it's, that's an interesting question because it's probably been – around for a hundred years because you load up one line and take your chances with that one line. Uh, I've done it both ways and I've had more success trying to have balance in your lines because if you're playing against a a good opponent, um, once that line comes off the ice, um, you're probably not going to get them back out there for another minute or minute and a half because each shift's going to be about 45 seconds. And um, if you don't have the depth that your opponent has, then you probably might lose the game because of those other two lines. So, um, you want you want to have a little bit of balance there. Yeah, and um, what a lot of teams will do now is they'll do pairs. They'll take two guys and then they'll maybe take a weaker player and put them on the line just to create some balance. Sure. Um, and then the other thing you have in hockey, where you, you have a fourteen-year-old freshman against an eighteen-year-old senior, there's the physical component of it. Sure. And one of the last top teams we had uh, that finished in 17, 16, 17, we made the decision. We were going to go with our real young kids and go through the growing pains and let them physically mature. And uh, it was constantly just reassuring them, hey, you know, you're okay. They were just physically out uh, muscled by bigger kids. Yeah. And I said, it's not a skill thing so much as a physical. By the time they were juniors and seniors, they were the they were the hammer now, and, and they were kind of 
being able to hold their own in, in the physical confrontations in front of the net, in the corner, along the boards, they weren't getting pushed off the puck. And, uh, and by having some consistency, the same group of kids for two, three years really made a difference as opposed to parking them on the bench and saying, come back when you're a little bit busy. Right. But, uh, yeah, so it's interesting to hear strategies because, um, I mean, this is just a, a very, very foreign sport to me, but I've always thought about it because, again, you've got these these lines that are going out there, and Jordan Fee kind of plays that style of basketball. He goes five in, five out, five in, five out. And so he's got two lines, and they're playing two to three minutes, but they're going full court press the entire game. And as soon as they get the ball, whoever has it goes. It's not like get it to the point guard. Occasionally, I mean, the point guard will get the ball when they're inbounds in it, but if – if they get a rebound or a steal, they're going. And they're shooting within probably five to ten seconds. I remember we went down to Westminster when I was working at Allegheny, and the reputation, they're, they're going to score over 100 on you. And it was a track meet. And uh, we scored the most points we had. I think it ended up being like 120 to 108 or something. But it was a fun game to watch. Yeah. You know, because Do you like other sports to watch? I do. Uh, I'm a big NFL fan. Okay. Uh, I... Uh, being a, an athletic trainer on a Saturday afternoon, I didn't really get into the college football as much. Uh, I like it, but I didn't watch it religiously because I was Because you were there. I was there. You were covering games. Um, I've, I've kind of lost a little bit with baseball. I don't know what, um, you know, living here, um, it's been tough to watch the Pirates. You know, it was fun a couple of years ago when they kind of came back. Yeah. Um, Kind of yeah. lost a little of that magic. Yeah, but uh, growing up at, at Cornell uh, was during the with the Yankees when with the Billy Martin and the George Steinbrenner, and it was just a circus always, you know. So you tuned in just to see what was going to happen yeah. next there. But yeah, I like all sports. Um, Who's your NFL team? Well, living here as long as I have, I, I would say it would be the Steelers. Now it's just okay. grown. Um, I'm glad to see Cleveland is now relevant again because when I first moved to Meadville, Cleveland had Kozar and they had. Uh, some playoff teams and it was really fun just to, as a newcomer to the area to watch the rivalry between the Browns and the Steelers. Sure. Um, but, uh, uh, it's Steelers having a tough year right now. Yeah. They're, I'm a Steelers fan too. And they're very, they're not fun to watch right now. I hate to say it. it it's, it's painful, especially offensively. Um, it just can't get anything going. And when they do like even the game where they finally went over 400 yards against the Bengals two weeks ago, they still only have one touchdown, right? It's like, you're not going to make any noise scoring one touchdown. I heard today that Pickett had surgery. Um, oh, did he? Um, I'm guessing if it's a high ankle sprain, which is what someone said, he wouldn't be available for the rest of the regular season. And I, I think they did something that I'm trying to think who it was a few years ago. It might've been Tom Brady and um, to try to speed up his recovery. But, uh, yeah, I think I, I, you know who um, Patrick Mahomes, he played in the Super Bowl with with uh, right after surgery. That's right. That might right? be who I'm he, And he had a high ankle sprain. Um, it was it was kind of ridiculous how quickly he came back. But in modern medicine, <laughs> yeah. So um, personal stuff. Uh, Can I ask you some personal questions? Sure. So family, wife. You said two daughters. Two daughters. Uh, my. Uh, Eldest daughter Joan um, lives in Meadville. Works for Voodoo Brewery. She was a school. That's teacher. the one that I met. She's a school teacher uh, for about 14, 15 years, and made a career change a couple of years ago. 
youngest daughter uh, works in Pittsburgh for UPMC. Both girls went to Pitt. What's she do at UPMC? She's in uh, HR. Okay. So, uh, and uh, they, uh, she loves Pittsburgh. I don't think she'll ever come back to Meadville, but. Uh, she a hockey fan? Yeah. Uh, both girls uh, were able to get internships with the uh, Penguins when they were at Pitt in media relations. Had nothing to do with, but they're just big hockey fans. So they. Uh, I'm sure it had something to do with their dad being uh, uh, eight-time yeah. state champ coach in Meadville. They worked on press row, and uh, Joan was fortunate enough to work um, during the Stanley Cup uh, years when they won in nine, in 2009, and um, and then she actually worked the outdoor Winter Classic, uh, you know, with the, in media relations there. She was able to help out with with that, so uh, she, she uh, really enjoyed that experience and uh, uh, used to have to attend post-game press conferences of the head coach, and then she would have to kind of take down all his notes, and then she would help the coach, you know, make sure that he was happy with how everything was going to be put Portrayed in the, in the, in the paper. Yeah. Yeah, so she, they're both, and, and you know, I think when you're a, a coach, especially with a job like I had at Allegheny where you're working a lot of weekends, a lot of evenings, if uh, if you don't have a wife and kids who are on board, it, it's, it's just not going to work, and... Uh, both girls were huge hockey fans, uh, came to all my games. My wife, uh, when I met her, she had season tickets for Cornell's hockey team. Wow. Know? So she had gotten them before I even met her. So that uh, it, it's just been a big part of our life. And probably um, hockey, I would say, was the main reason I stayed at Allegheny for as long as I did because it was such a, uh, you know, the people I met. I had a, my Allegheny group of people, and most of, if not all of them, were not from Meadville. And then you had the circle of friends who were, you know, the players, their parents, the sure. parents. So it was just a, just a nice fit and uh, something I, I really enjoyed for for thirty seven years. Well, I know Meadville enjoyed having you. Well, and you're still there, but as you know, such a, a person of the community, both at Allegheny and with Meadville Bulldogs. Well, we got you know through my friend who's the head coach at Cornell we we started a program in 2006 called power play for prevention where our players would go into the community with a pledge card it could be a dollar for a power play goal or five dollars or a one-time gift and um, back then I think the kids there had to do a senior project for to, to graduate and um, it's it's been in place now since 2006 and I think we first partnered with the Susan Coleman organization, and then uh, about 11 or 12 years ago, we then partnered with the uh, Barco Center. Okay. And uh, because of the kids in the community, we've raised, I think, $130,000. Uh, some of the money went to Coleman, but for the last dozen or so years, the money goes to Barco. Yeah, Barco. It's awesome. So, Two uh, great organizations. Yeah. So I think it's... It's been good for the kids to see that life sometimes isn't always fair. And, uh, you know, probably everybody's got somebody in their family that's been affected. I would think. And uh, so it's it's something that uh, we're really proud of. And, uh, um, yeah, so uh, now I'm, I'm working with a couple parents. Um, it's a scholarship fund that uh, uh, in memory of a, a former dad whose son played for me and uh, he was on our board. Dave Thomas, we call him Opie, and we're raising money for scholarship for any little boy or girl if they want to skate or play hockey. Uh, 
we have resources for them. That's awesome. So this is our second year, and uh, we're hoping to... You're staying busy. <laughs> and uh, I uh, have a, a dog that I told you about earlier that uh, keeps me real busy. So yeah, Silver Lab, right? Silver Lab, 19 months. So it's Boy uh, or girl? A boy, yeah. What's his name? Clyde. Clyde. So, so he... Uh, probably not the best decision I made when we when I agreed to doing it, but uh, it's uh, too late now. He's it's about the age of our golden retriever and that's definitely one of the worst decisions we ever made it was my wife's decision i didn't want the dog <laughs> now she catches me this dog is very sweet well the, my daughters and i surprised my wife with it and uh, she wasn't real happy for the first uh, few weeks so i think the dog's growing on her now but she made it very clear that she did not want a dog and uh, but uh, i think uh, he's starting to fit in a little better yeah so you mentioned traveling to me because that's one of my favorite things to do. Do you travel much? And if so, where have been the favorite places that you've been? You know, when uh, working at Allegheny, it was hard to travel through the winter and coaching. So a lot of our time in the summer, um, Sue's parents were in Florida. My parents were up in a little small town like Conneaut Lake in Ontario. So we would split, uh, you know, a couple of weeks in each place. And that was it for, for quite a few years. Um, We've, we've been to Mexico, you know, we've done some traveling, and now that I'm not coaching, um, you know, we're, uh, we're starting to do a little bit. We did a little bit. Uh, Mo Sue's mom is still alive, so we're trying to uh, make trips to Florida to see her as often as we can. And um, uh, we uh, are going to Europe this summer. Uh, Where are you going? Going to Finland. Uh, I've been asked to coach a, uh, a team uh, in Helsinki, so uh, we're going to kind of partner a uh, it's a little that's awesome tournament and then partner her with a little vacation around it as that's well. fantastic is the team from here it's uh western pennsylvania kids from ohio and i think it's open to even some michigan kids that are going to very be cool so uh, how long will you be there for well we're going to be there for about seven to ten days i haven't okay we're still working through all the logistics of it so uh, um so uh, my brother did a lot of traveling in his job, and he said, uh, you'll really like Helsinki. It's a very progressive city. And uh, um, he said it'll be nice there in the summer. So, nice. So looking forward to that. So for, I mean, a lot of people know you, and they kind of immediately probably identify you as Meadville Bulldogs hockey, right? I mean, that's when I hear your name, that's what I think of. Can you tell me something that our guests may not know about? who you are and what you like to do. Like, do you have any hobbies outside of hockey or coaching or uh, this or that? I love working outside in the yard. I find, I found working around kids all school year with Allegheny and coaching. Uh, I, it was my uh, place to go, you know, where you could just work outside and uh, be left alone. And that was some solitude and, and quiet and, uh, and running. I got into running Right after I graduated from Cornell, and uh, I've never stopped. Uh, for me, it's, it, it's a couple of things, um, kind of like you driving down. That's your time in the car, your truck. Um, if I was, if it was hockey, I was thinking about, you know, what's what's not working. What do I need to do? And that 30, 40, 50 minutes running would help, uh, you know, clear up some things, or just you, you know, you have a coach who's driving you crazy, or a kid who's driving you crazy get out in there and go run and it was just um, kind of all of a sudden you feel 
you know, better about, you know, everything. And, uh, something about that. I used to run too. I, I bad hips, but I walk quite frequently and that's my time. Yeah. Uh, so that, that has been something that I've always enjoyed. And, uh, um, and, uh, I don't golf. Uh, I keep telling myself I'm going to do it. Uh, they say hockey players are good golfers. Well, I can tell you one that isn't. So, uh, <laughs> Um, well, uh, it goes maybe goes the other way too, and I'm not a good golfer. Um, I had success a couple times, but not uh, consistently. But I'm probably the worst person you could ever see on skates. I tried a couple times, and these legs, these feet, these everything was not made for skates or skis. I was made for sneakers, wooden basketball courts, and <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, you know I. I Retired from Allegheny in 2017, and uh, in 2020, I went back to work there part-time in the Office of uh, Institutional Advancement, which was used to be called Development Alumni Affairs. So I'm working with uh, a lot of the athletes I took care of, and uh, it's a part-time position. I work from home, but it, it's, it seems to be more in part-time, but I, I've enjoyed it because I'm reconnecting with a lot of the guys that are, you know, guys from the 1990 football team I see oh, wow. some of those guys and some basketball players that I um, you know close with and uh, baseball guys so that uh, that's kept me busy uh, and I thought I would miss the hockey this year uh, there would be a big void but so far I think I'm keeping busy that I um, you know I've got enough to keep me busy through the day and when there is quiet I've got this dog that uh, <laughs> needs some attention so, yeah yeah that's awesome. so well, the next thing that we generally do is we, we go into the uh, seventh inning Sawbone shoe stretch. So okay. sneakers, did you did you bring anything or wear anything fun? I well, I or memorable or around 1985, uh, we had a there was a sporting goods representative that called on Allegheny and uh, he put me into a pair of Nike uh, Air Pegasus, I think, and. Um, they put the number on the tongue of the shoe, and I'm up to 39 now. So I've worn the same shoes for... And Those are is, Pegasus? These are Pegasus. This is the 38 edition. Holy cow. And um, there was one year where they changed the tongue, and they had so many complaints that they, they scrapped that. And that was really the only year that I changed shoes for a brief period of time. But uh, Did you not like the tongue either? No, it was basically just... Uh, like a piece of paper. Oh wow! And, so the laces were digging in, or yeah. And and uh, when I asked the rep, uh, or when I went to buy my the pair of shoes the next year, I said, "Have they done anything?" He said, "Oh, we heard about it from my customers, so uh, they went back to the." So this is the thirty eighth edition. This is thirty eight, yeah. So wow. I'll wear. I have two pairs. I alternate them, and then different uh, colors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I white and black or what do you, uh, do you do? gray? There's a couple of crazy colors, you know, and, um, that they do, but, um, yeah, that's been my shoe that I've worn for all these years. Does it, is it just, it like fits your foot so well? I, I think, you know, listening to some people, they say, you know, you're, the, if you find a shoe you like and you kind of adapt to it, um, uh, I used to have a lot of cross country track athletes in the training room. And uh, they were always constantly changing shoes because they wanted to find a shoe. Now, their mileage was crazy. Substantial, yeah. But, you know, mine's maybe 20 miles a week, maybe. And they were... So are these your running shoes? Yeah. Now, I don't run in these anymore. 
right. uh, I kind of took them out of circulation. Okay. And, uh, but um, but yeah. Pegasus was always your your running shoe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was a Brooks Adrenaline guy. That okay. was what I always wore, running wise. Yeah. Well, growing up as a kid, the shoe industry kind of took off in the '60s with Puma and Adidas. And mm-hmm. I think they were brothers, and they hated. Were each they really? Other. Yeah, and they were German, and uh, that was you know you either wore a Puma or a, a Adidas. You know, when wow. You were a kid, and then uh, uh, you know going back to that, and I'm trying to think if that was in the Last Dance or if that was, was a separate movie. That was Air. But, yeah. Air with Ben Affleck and yeah, uh, Jordan Matt Damon. Uh, the, the the 1984 signing of Michael Jordan with, yeah. with Nike because he was really wanted to go to Adidas and Reebok was courting him too, but he wanted Adidas. They were the first and second and then Nike was way off and they put everything in all the eggs in that basket. And his mother was smart enough to get a percentage of the... The royalties, show. yeah. The royalties and uh, yeah, so... You know, so, so Michael got some from this. These are the Air Jordan 1s. The, the original version. These are the breads, and that just stands for kind of the the, the colorway. So, so the black, red, um, Chicago colors, Bulls colors. I wore these kind of as bulldog colors oh, tonight. I okay. wanted to. Any guess I have, I, I try to figure out either something cool to, you know, support them with. For for Bill, I wore a little combination of Maplewood and Franklin. So I had some similar red and black Jordan shoes, but. Uh, like yours, these are very, very comfortable to me. And these, of all the Jordan shoes, and I have close to 50 pairs now, these are my, um, not this particular pair, but the Jordan 1 Lows are the most comfortable. They just fit my foot really well. First year I worked at Cornell, uh, our team doctor, orthopedic surgeon, uh, he used to have all of us. So if, let's say you rip up your knee and I'm the athletic trainer for your team. He would require us to go right into the operating room to get permission to attend and uh the first thing that struck me he was wearing a pair of like running shoes you know and he said god i'm on my feet all these you know hours all yeah. day and he said you know you gotta have and uh i said god that makes sense you know mm-hmm. he, uh, always had this latest and state-of-the-art running shoes and i actually wear crocs is what i wear rubber, okay. rubber crocs but i don't have the ones that have holes in it they're solid okay because obviously i don't want blood dripping down into my foot or anything no. like that yeah so. but uh so the next thing that we generally do is we do the um, the Sawbones Challenge. And I think I want to do something a little bit differently tonight. So okay. you mentioned to me that outside of hockey, because I would not be able to answer any hockey questions, you said you're an NFL fan. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I've done this before in the past. I think it's a little fun segment um, where we kind of create these dream teams um, where we'll, we'll do one quarterback each. We'll do two wide receivers one running back, one tight end, and then like a defensive player. And your team has to go against my team. Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to play this out, but um, we'll start with a quarterback position. So I'm going to give you as my guest the opportunity to you pick your first all-time quarterback. I'm going to go with Joe Montana. Very, very interesting you picked that because when I did this one other time, I'm trying to remember the guess that it was. I gave them the first guess. They went Tom Brady. Guess who I went with? Montana. Joe Montana. Okay. So I'm going to do the inverse. I'm going to go with Brady, but love Joe. He was, uh, you know, you look at him, he doesn't look like a 
give him the ball in the last couple minutes. That, of the that's the key, right? Because certain quarterbacks can play well an entire game, but there's certain players like the Michael Jordans, the Joe Montanas, even the Tom Brady's, they're clutch. Two, three minutes to go in a game, you never feel like you're out of it, right? As long as they, it's mathematically still possible, mm-hmm. they have a really good chance of making that final drive down. So, um, wide receiver, you get two. Get two. So you go one, I'll go one, then I'll go one, then you go the last one. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go Jerry Rice. That was, I think, my pick. Um, I'll go Randy Moss. Oh, boy. Um, By the way, Jerry Rice is the keynote speaker in Chicago at the Becker's meeting that I'm a, a speaker at next summer. Oh, wow. There's going to be a good chance that I'm going to meet Jerry Rice. I'm really pumped because he's one of my favorite football players of all time. I'm going to go Paul Warfield. Paul Warfield. Wow. I almost feel like I have to do uh, like something local, like Fred Bolitnikoff or something like that. <laughs> I, yeah. I could do that. Um, who am I going to go with, though? I think I'm going to go with somebody a little bit more current. Um, you know who I'm going to go with? And this is really current. I like this guy a lot. lot. Puka Akua. Do you know who he is? Plays for the Rams. Oh, okay. The guy I was thinking with the Rams was... Cooper Cup. That's who I was thinking. Yeah. This is a guy that just came this year, and he's taken off. He's the new Cooper Cup. He got injured the other day. They thought he broke his ribs, and he came back out in the game, and he just tore them up. He is... He's... He's big, he's tall, he's explosive. Um, he's a white kid too. Just, just. Um, so tight end. Who do you want to go with? Boy, it's hard not to like Kelsey. I mean, he. Um, you know, I was debating between Kelsey and uh, Gronk. Oh yeah, that's because, where I was going. You know, just they know they're going to go. You know, Brady, that was his go-to guy, and and Mahomes, if the game's not going well, yet. He can get open. Isn't so. it amazing? Everybody knows where the ball's probably going, and they still can't stop it. And I look at Kelsey and Gronk. They're both great personalities. You know, they're good personalities for the game. And Yeah. So um, I'll go with Kelsey. Good, because I like uh, Gronk's personality better than Kelsey's. <laughs> they're both interesting in their own ways, but I just find Gronk very funny. And um, the Kelsey-Taylor Swift thing, I don't know. There's just something there that's... I'm not sure that'll last, but... No, but probably, I don't think it's probably lasted this long so um how about defense you can either go like defensive player or like a team i'm gonna go lawrence taylor because i really think he changed uh you know belichick was his coordinator there under themselves and i think they recognized they could line him up anywhere they wanted and it was a nightmare for teams to figure out gosh that's a great pick he was. I, I think he's one of the guys that have changed the game. Just dominant player, right? And the, and the Browns have one now in uh, Garrett. I think. Yeah, old Miles Garrett. Yeah, yeah for sure. He's, he's working for. Him, so I'm a little biased here um, as a Steeler fan, but I'm going to go with Troy Polamalu. Right? Just like I loved his energy that and, he played with, and I think he's another guy that changed the game too because they moved him all over the field. Yeah, and uh, he created chaos. Exactly. Right? Exactly. We had a kid like that at Allegheny named Nick Reiser. He was a he should have been playing division one hockey, but his brother played for us and 
and uh, he had a great experience, and he came here, and uh, he was just a matchup nightmare for every offense because they could put him on the edge, they could put him in the middle, and he was just so darn athletic and, and quick that he just, they couldn't cover him. Wow. You know, he drew more penalties than any player I think I've ever seen. So, so one one other quick comment, question. You know, Bob Sanders, Cathedral Prep, ends up going out to Iowa. playing. Was there a Ken O'Keefe connection there? This was his Ken's recruiting area. He had Northwest PA and, and the Ohio, Northeast Ohio. Okay, so even though Ken was more offensive, he helped recruit um, Bob out there? A lot of these guys are given a, a geographical area. Okay. Because Ken had coached here and knew the Western. Well, that Mike, sorry. Uh, and he knew Western PA, Northeast Ohio. You know, okay. He was very familiar with Pittsburgh. Um, and there were two or three kids he got out of uh, this area that uh, went to Iowa. But uh, um, yeah, there's, I think these Javon. Um, oh, gosh. Um, I think he's coaching up here somewhere. He played at Iowa for a number of years, and then he played in the Canadian Football League. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. So, but uh, yeah, Bob Sanders was a great player for, I think he was a safety. Yeah. Then he played for the Colts. Yeah. You know, played with Peyton Manning, and yeah. yeah I think he won a Super Bowl with him. I think you're right. You're right. And I think he may have been a player of the year, too. A he, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was, he was a real deal. It wasn't like he was just playing professional football. He was, he was thriving. Yeah, Ken used to come into Meadville, and he'd that'd be his headquarters, and then he would get up and go to Cleveland, Erie, Pittsburgh, and then come back. And there was a group of us that would try to get together for dinner, and so it was fun catching up with those guys. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Coach, I want to thank you. This it's has been, been a fun. lot of fun. It's been fun. Hearing hearing hear a lot of names that I've heard of, didn't really know all the stories behind it, and. Um, you have definitely created quite the name that I'm sure you have to be extremely proud of. Your family has to be extremely proud of. And I'm sure, and I know all your former players are extremely proud to have coached for you or played for you as, as you being their head coach. And um, Well, I, I realized after watching as an athletic trainer for 30 some years and coaching, um, it, it's the players, you know, that's really what it's all about. And if you don't have the players, they don't always have to be the most talented, but you need to have guys that are going to be committed and and do all the right things. And uh, uh, if you if you have those kids, it certainly makes your job a lot easier. You know? Yeah. And and assistant coaches, you know, your staff around you. So it's certainly it's a, a team effort. No, no doubt about it. So. Well, thank you so much for being willing to come up to do this. It's been fun. I've been wanting to meet you for a long time. So well, now if I see you out. Yeah. I know to get you an Irish whis whiskey. So. <laughs> and I apologize for hitting this mic so many Oh, times, no, but. no worries whatsoever. Yeah. want to wish you, your family, a very uh, Merry Christmas. And Same to you. Have a blessed holiday season. And uh, This is a fun age for your kids enjoying Christmas. It is. Yeah. Very busy. We were supposed to go to Florida. Best news ever, we canceled it. So we're okay. staying here because I don't like to travel for Christmas. There's, We used to try to see all the grandparents and stuff like that. And I finally said, you know what? It's just miserable packing up your car. Especially kids, right? They just want to play with their toys and yeah. stay at home. And So I said, if you want to see us, you come to Meadville. We made that rule in 2015 when yeah. we moved here. So Good rule. So. Well, thank you again. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. So everybody, stay tuned. We're going to give you a little preview of uh, next week's guest. Um, it's going to be a good one. But uh, as always, we thank you for your participation. Subscribe. 
like, share with your friends, leave comments, suggestions, anybody you'd like to see on the show. And, um, you know, look forward to seeing you next week. So hang in there. And again, have a great Christmas. Take care. For those of you in the Erie area, he is kind of this young gun that's came into the Gannon University, and he is now their head men's basketball coach. I remember Jordan when he was literally this tall. Um, I joke, I said he looked like uh, Dennis the Menace. He had bleach blonde hair, a little bowl cut. He was, I think, 10, 11 years younger than me. But uh, Jordan Fee, um, super excited to, to catch some of his basketball games. He runs a very up-tempo, fast-paced offense. I mean, they're averaging 130, sometimes 140 points a game. So um, it's going to be a great episode. Stay tuned, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Tell me all about it, Doc.